The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, welcome back to the Video Insiders. How are you doing, Dror? I'm doing great, Mark. How are you today? Oh, I'm awesome. And as always, it's great to be on the microphone. We are in the middle of a back-to-back podcast marathon. Feels like a sprint some days, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're doing this recording day after day. Uh, We just had a lot of demand uh, lately. And uh, we, we found some, uh, you know, excellent uh, guests who were willing to come on the show, and everything's kind of been packed uh, towards uh, the end of the year. Uh, and uh, but it's really been exciting, you know. We should uh, hear some uh, very exciting uh, stuff coming your way very soon. Yes, absolutely. And uh, you know, we have raved about Demuxed. Um last month. Uh, you know, Beamer was a sponsor, and of course, a lot of our listeners were at that event. Um, and you know, we talked about it on the podcast. Uh, just really amazing event. And this guest that we have today was one of the featured speakers and um, certainly many, many, many good speakers. In fact, I would say every speaker was awesome. Um, but this topic uh, that we're going to cover today is, uh, in our minds, uh, certainly probably one of the most interesting. And uh, so we think that, you know, for our audience, uh, they're really going to appreciate it, enjoy it. And most importantly, um, you know, leave with some thought provoking uh, uh, things to consider around the area of um, of quality metrics. So this is going to be a good conversation today. Yes, definitely. And uh, the title of his talk at uh, Demuxed was objectionable uses of objective quality metrics, uh, which immediately caught our attention. So we got him on the podcast. And uh, today we are very happy to host Richard Fliam from Bitmovin. Hello, Richard, and welcome to the Video Insiders. Hey, and thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Richard. You know, you'll recall that I reached out to you a couple days before um, your actual talk at Demuxed. And yeah, you know, I saw the the title of your talk and, uh, you know, just just looking at, at your background, the kinds of things you've been working on in video and in encoding, I said, we have to have Richard on the show. So I'm so happy that, you know, your schedule finally uh, was able to free up and you could come on. So uh, thank, thank you for being on today. Yep. And, um, you know, I'm really excited to, to talk about this. I think it's a, a subject that I've found a, a lot of passion in um, and have found very interesting. Great. We, we love uh, guests who have a passion about what uh, about the topic they're speaking about, because it makes it much more interesting. And I really like the way you started your Demux talk, uh, telling the story of how you were an engineer. So as an engineer, you uh, appreciated those objective quality measures, which are basically um, formulas and algorithms for uh, manipulating uh, pixels and uh, coming back with some uh, number based on those uh, pixels. Um, So uh, tell us how you got uh, involved in this uh, area and how did you uh, suddenly realize the issue uh, with, uh, with these type of metrics? Yeah, so it's actually interesting. I I kind of uh, I joined Bitmovin um, about two years ago now, and uh, I took on the role of a solutions architect, moving a little bit away from traditional engineering. 
And part of my role there was to really help customers understand encoding and video quality. And my customers were interested in using video quality metrics. So they always had me um, out there in the marketplace running video quality metrics. And I uh, was talking with uh, one of our engineers actually at the previous Demuxed. And that engineer mentioned to me that he, he had been working on something where he could see the difference very clearly in the output of the quality, but he couldn't show it in a PSNR average or a VMAF average. And I was you know, pretty convinced that VMAF and PNS, PSNR were really good. So I, I went out there and I said, I'm gonna prove you wrong. Um, and the thing is, he was right. I couldn't show him <laughs> in the average. Um, I mean, it's not shocking. I, I, I did show him a difference. Um, and that was part of the talk that I covered is, is what that difference is and why it matters. And then as I dived in more and more, um, I was able to really show a lot of holes where we were actually um, going to our really sophisticated customers um, who who did this stuff manually, who do things like print out frames side by side and say, there's problems here and send them to us circle. Yes, there are people who do that. We know some of those people, don't we, Dror? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when I talked to them and we went and built the encoder that really optimized for their use cases and that really perceptual visual quality, we still didn't see movements in these averages. And I was realizing we were basically working against the video quality metrics. Sometimes they even got worse. It's pretty rare, but definitely they wouldn't necessarily improve with every improvement we made. Yeah, that's, um, uh, you know, sort of sobering. Um, and I think many of our listeners probably have had that experience. And that's why I know, you know, as we were preparing for this interview, it's it's our um you know, our mutual objective here, uh, not just to talk about, you know, what what the problems are with objective uh, quality metrics, but also what some solutions are. So I'm really excited that, you know, I think by the end, you're going to want to listen all the way to the end because um, there's going to be some 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 really key and critical uh, information and insights given. So why don't we start, uh, Richard? Uh, you know, everyone listening has heard or knows or has used PSNR, SSIM, and of course, you know, VMAF. But maybe it's helpful just to give a really quick explanation of how those three quality metrics work. Yeah. So, I mean, PSNRs are probably the most elementary metric we use today. Um, and as I explained in my talk, it's derived from signal to noise ratio, which is how your Wi-Fi card measures its connection to the router or your phone to the cell tower. It has a really fundamental meaning. It's, you know, how much signal am I getting through compared to the noise I'm sending? Now, PSNR is peak signal to noise ratio. So it's measuring what your maximum signal is versus your noise, and then it's run on a, a log scale, aka a decibel scale. Um, it's a very basic metric, and in some ways, we use it as a image quality or video quality metric, but that's not really what it was invented for. PSNR is really about how much information made it through at a digital level. 
Um, and so when people look at that metric, it's a very important metric for encoders because obviously if more information makes it through, you're gonna have a less distorted image. On the other hand, we aren't driven by pure amounts of information. Your brain's a really incredible thing and it looks for things like edges in an image. I think we all know that if you stand in a field, you can see a square in the trees very easily. Um, this is a random side note, but my dad was in the military and that's something they teach you. You look for shapes when you're looking out in the field, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so our vision is not simply driven by just raw amount of information. SSIM was one of the first metrics that tried to, um, tried to address that. It was looking at, hey, we have shapes. Let's find a, write an algorithm to try to find basically edges. So SSIM is structural similarity index, and it tries to look for similar shapes, but the reality is it actually looks for edges. Um, but again, we're not just driven by edges. We do need texture info. And when we address texture info versus edges is very complicated. So those are the two ones people see the most common. Um, the third one we see the most today, and I think it's really because the guys in, in Netflix um, went out there and promoted this heavily, um, is they built a video metric that uses a bunch of what they call elementary metrics, metrics like PSNR or SSIM, um, underneath the covers and tries to steer between the uses of all of those and find where we use texture over shape, et cetera. That, um, that algorithm they use to find that is a support vector machine. As I mentioned, um, PopTech loves to talk about that being AI. I don't really know if that's the case. It's been around since the 70s. It's to, uh, to kind of machine learning experts, just table stakes, but it is a very good algorithm for this kind of things. And when we do a measurement of how that compares to what we think good, so we take humans, the we, and we measure what they say good image quality is, um, how that compares to PSNR SSIM is much better to the correlation to what we think good image quality is. So uh, basically what you are looking for in an objective measure is that it will have good correlation with human results. Um, and human results are measured um, mostly by doing uh, standardized visual testing. And then you get mean opinion scores, which is uh, um, the average rating by humans of, uh, of the quality of, of the video. And you want to find an objective metric that has uh, a high correlation with mean opinion score or MOS, right? That would be your goal. Yeah, that's precisely correct. And I, I, there are actually other subjective measures, adaptive paired comparison, whatever, that are a way of sorting um, what humans score video quality as. Um, but I mean, I think it's funny that we call it an objective measure because people think of it as an objective right. And what it's, it's not that. In fact, what our good measure of it is that it closely correlates to a subjective measure. Subjective is not objectively better. It's objective in that an algorithm is used. Right, right. And, 
and and subjective you might say that subjective opinion is not good because everyone has their own opinion but actually when you average all the opinions of uh, viewers regarding a particular video that is uh, the true human opinion about that video so it's not subjective anymore after you average uh, the opinions of, of many uh, viewers um, it's just the human uh, perceptual uh, rating for that video and that's what we are looking for when we're measuring uh, video quality so actually what we call subjective is not subjective and we what we call objective is not objective it's just numerical and algorithmical um, so I guess and the advantage of the objective measure, I, I guess, is that it's very easy to calculate, right? Any computer can do it. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the reality is, and I go into this in my talk a little bit, is because the modern encoder has to make so many decisions, there's so many possibilities um, of encoding parameters, we can't run subjective metrics on all of them. So we always run objective metrics to make those decisions. And so that's the advantage. But it's not, I mean, if we could, if you had the capability to compare every encode subjectively, do it, right? It's better because using those subjective metrics is really looking at how humans look at things. And the goal of video compression is to fool human visual systems, not to fool computers. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I, I liked how you... Uh, put that, you know, in your talk is that, you know, it's, it's exploiting the human, um, uh, you know, visual system, the HVS is the whole point of, of how video encoding works, right? You know, we're trying to remove as much data as possible, but without the eye seeing it, um, you know, or without it being, um, uh, you know, that perceptive, you know, to, to a human viewer. And uh, I thought that was a really good point. Yeah, it's. Um, I go through in the talk about uh, the the concept of adversarial neural networks and adversarial examples, where we intentionally generate examples that break neural networks. And it was very funny to me to realize that we're intent. The point of an encoder is to intentionally generate images that break your human visual system. That's right. And 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 you demonstrated the way to break VMF. Yes. Um, so ours was actually pretty simple. Um, it's a, it's the fact that VMAF relies on averages. So VMAF, ultimately all of the objective quality metrics I've seen to date, um, compute a score for an image and they may use some information from neighboring images. VMAF does. Um, but it's really, they compute a score for an image. They take the average of all those images and they say, that's your average score for your content. Mm -hmm. That's not right. Um, if you, in the middle of your sequence of 100 VMAF, which is perfect score, drop three frames to zero, the average is not out of 100 is not a 97. It's way, way lower than that. Um, and so you can break VMAF very easily just by looking at the distribution of frames. And there's actually a little bit of a warning label on VMAF about this because the guys who developed these are really, really, really into this and they understand it. I think the trouble is a lot of times we as consumers of these 
don't address them as well as we should and understand our tools. That's a really critical point, you know, and thank thank you for making that because I think um, we can fall into that in a lot of areas where um, there's new technology developed, especially when it comes out of a, uh, in, in this case, we're talking about VMAF developed by Netflix and everything that I have seen. I mean, Netflix has been very um, sort of forthcoming and disclosing about it was developed for the Netflix use case. You know, it was developed with Netflix content. It was, you know, it's very um, centric to what their needs are, which, of course, makes sense. Why would they develop something that that isn't, you, you know, so so there's nothing wrong with that. That's the right thing for them to do. And yet um, I think it's very possible that, you know, some of the. Um, uh, you know, in some cases where maybe VMAF is not performing as people would expect, they're trying to use it in a way that it wasn't developed, right? Would you say that's, you know, that's even some of the issue that we see? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely. And actually, if you go work to dig through the VMAF support tickets, which I've unfortunately had to do, um, you'll see there's a lot of discussion about, say, sports content. Now, Netflix is an incredible, incredible service, but they don't carry a lot of water polo. Um, and so maybe VMAF is not tuned to deal with soccer and water polo and football, which honestly are very different visual sequences to the human eye yes. than a cinematic. Well, and, you know, ultimately this can all fall into the bucket uh, drawer as, um, you know, we, we need T-shirts that say video is hard. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, VMAF is, is probably the best objective quality measure that we have today. But still, as you pointed out, it has its limitations and it is does not have perfect correlation with the human viewing. And when you analyze your content with VMAF, you need to be aware of that, uh, you know, warning message, as, as, you, as you said, which accompanies um, a VMAF and, uh, and uh, kind of tells you when and where it should be used and, and where it and it shouldn't be used. Uh, and and you you mentioned, you know, breaking VMAF, it's much easier to break PSNR, right? Because PSNR is also averaging across the frame. So if you have like a very thin line uh, in a strong color, but like one pixel, two pixels wide going around the, the image, which everybody, I mean, every human viewer would notice, um, that a very small amount of overall pixels might be averaged out um, in your PSNR score, and you'd get a very high score, although the uh, image is obviously um, degraded and has a terrible artifact compared to the original. Um, but uh, in, instead of uh, breaking um, those quality measures, I, I would like to uh, bring up the other side of the coin, uh, which is uh, encoders that try to adapt their output and optimize their encoding for those objective quality measures uh, because they are tested according to those quality measure. And that's that's an interesting uh, trend um, which started with, with X264 um, open source. Um, encoders usually optimize their encoding parameters uh, for great visual quality because that's what people want. But then when they get measured by these uh, objective quality measures, 
which are not very correlated with subjective quality, and they get low scores on PSNR, for example, then they add a flag, uh, tune PSNR, saying that, okay, if you want great visual quality, use the default, but if you want to great... You, get, you want to get high PSNR scores because that's what you're measuring, just use the tuned PSNR flag. And if you want to get high SSIM scores, use the tuned SSIM flag and you'll get great SSIM scores. Subjective quality might suffer, but you get what you ask for and you get uh, high uh, scores on the objective metrics because if you want, the encoder can tune um, the video encoding process for those metrics. So wh- what do you think about these... Uh, flags that are available in, in encoders to um, uh, to tune the output for a certain objective quality measure? Um, I will tell you this. When you mention them to our engineers, they roll their eyes and laugh. Hey, that's more that's more polite than what Dror does. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's classic, and I mentioned this, it's classic Goodhart's law. It's, it's we're optimizing for a measure, um, and uh, the measure ceases to become a good target because – the me- we as soon as that happens, we exploit any difference between the measure and the actual um, intended output. So unless the measure is a perfect, uh, perfect one to one onto map to your target, it it you immediately start exploiting any deltas. Um, and so yeah, don't run tune PSNR, please, and and don't ask me to hand you an asset with tune PSNR. I. I personally, um, I mean, we can do it. I will, won't tell a customer no, but I would tell you that it's not what you want and it's not what you want to compare. So we will link up um, to your demuxed slides so that you know everybody can reference. Um, but you, um, I, I recall you had uh, two images, one, and, and I think it was Tune PSNR, maybe it was uh, SSIM, um, where it showed the visual difference. And I mean, it's so glaring. It's like nobody could look at that and say, well, it's it's okay." There's a really simple hack to do that. You can do uh, just blur on the image like Gaussian blur. And that just moves the averages a little bit. And then it's really simple for the encoder to compress it because it's more contiguous. And it's the wrong thing to do. Um, And we build encoders that do that. I mean, I was joking that this was how not to tune an encoder, but we actually do build encoders today that do that. Um, And the reality is I would love to say that, you know, nobody on the market does. I'm pretty sure every encoder on the market has some sort of tuned PSNR flag, even if they don't expose it. I heard the story from our founder, Sharon Carmel, who used this technique, blurring, uh, in his uh, first startup that was probably... Um, 20 years ago or 25 years ago um, uh, for this uh, uh, exact uh, purpose. Uh, you, you blur the image a bit and then it compresses uh, much better. Uh, also, you can darken the image a bit and then it compresses much better and you almost don't uh, notice it. So very old tricks um, um, in, in, in the book. Um, but, but obviously, you know, we, we want to... Um, um, we want to target um, subjective video quality when we do the um, the encodes. Um, 
and uh, and and the question is how do you really do that uh, um, at scale as you mentioned you can't have millions of people watching each and every video that goes out yeah and I think that's a really interesting challenge and um, I I've heard a, a story that um, several experts in the field that debunked last year had a very verbose debate on this at uh, at a uh, bar after the event that was quite entertaining to listen to and I wish I could have been a client those are the best sessions um, <laughs> but my 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 understanding of this is there's two really good ways in my mind one is to double check your results right vmaf is a pretty good measure so use a sophisticated objective quality measure um, know its warnings know know where it falls down and then double check it run your encodes and then select a sample we do that with statistics all the time you know 10% of of uh, a sample will probably tell you or even 1% if you're at sufficient volume will probably catch any major issues where you're accidentally optimizing for this objective quality metric over a real target those subjective quality metrics um, and then especially if you're considering bringing a new encoder in-house, encode both clips and watch them, right? That's that's very, very important. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you're in the field, Richard, and so you're dealing with a wide range of, of customers and use cases and workflows. What are can can you share with us what you're seeing that people are doing or beginning to do or planning? Um, to introduce more subjective evaluation techniques, you know, into the process. Do you have any insights? Yeah. So I think the most interesting one for me will stand out is um, when you go look at the major providers, they will often now give you a simple like one to five stars on video quality. And that's not Moz. You need a more... Um, sophisticated metric to deal with the fact that you haven't kind of set the stage for the people involved. Um, but when you run a subjective quality metric off of that, that does deals with the uncertainty and does the appropriate sorting, um, you get a really high quality metric. Um, so I think that's one that's super interesting to see out there. Um, this is something uh, Twitter has done and deployed out in the field. Um, it's something I know Netflix does to some extent. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really big one. The other one I've seen is a slow, um, slow realization uh, from the ever-growing video engineering field that uh, the golden eyes of past, which people always were like, well, what does that even mean, um, mm -hmm. actually had, had real value. Yeah. Um, and I tell people all the time, I'm brain That's damaged. Right. I can't watch video anymore on production because I only see defects. Um, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with. It is a hazard of yeah. our job, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's we a hazard. About that and you can't watch TV anymore and you can't focus on the plot or on the action. It's all, uh, see this artifact there and those textures over there and the banding and, yeah, brain damage, <laughs> definitely. Um, so I think bringing those, you know, back in is 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 something really important. And then I, for for the other piece of this, of being sophisticated about it, um, I've seen a beginning push towards open source tooling. That is, um, 
a kind of common set of tooling where we all from the field can show up and bring um, bring our the things we found where it missed. And so VMAF has an open call to help them improve the metric. Like you said, it's in. Um, tuned a bit for the Netflix use case, but they're asking you to help them. And if you can, we will eventually build that system where it's so good, we can just optimize for the measure. And that's something um, I've been pushing for. I've done a lot of work on tooling internally at Bitmovin. We've talked about open sourcing um, that will help people run these sophisticated metrics out there in the field. Yeah. So we presented uh, actually on Drawer and uh, our head of algorithms uh, presented a, a system that we have developed and have used internally for a number of years now. And uh, only recently, you know, have started to sort of share it more publicly um, and not because we're trying to keep it a secret, but, you know, we've really refined it to, to the point where we feel like, hey, this could be really useful to the industry. And um, it's a it's a system that actually, Richard, you, you probably would be very interested in, too. Um, we call it Auto Vista. And uh, it, it's a way to crowdsource BT500 testing. Um, so, and we have, uh, you know, really found it to be extremely effective and uh, a way to get highly um, correlated, you know, that is to human vision results and to do it at scale and to do it really cost effectively. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, and it, we're certainly, um, uh, you know, talking about this and, you know, I'm assuming there's probably some others that have, you know, maybe similar approaches or other methods. Um, but it's really good to see that, um, there is work being done, you know, and I think that's part of what, um, we want to make sure, you know, for, again, for engineers who are listening and saying, okay, fine, I get it, but what's my alternative? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I get it. I should be, um, you know, using subjective techniques, you know, to evaluate video, but, but how can I possibly do that? You know, other than just grabbing a couple files and three or four of us, you know, going into a dark room and, <laughs> you know, how could we even begin to do that at some sort of scale? And um, the, the message is, is that there are people working on it. Um, there are systems being built. And uh, I think, you know, in, in time, uh, there's going to be a lot more, um, you know, that's done in this area. I agree. And I also think it's worth, you know, discussing that we know that not everybody coming to the field is an expert in video encoding. In fact, the reality is I wasn't an expert. I just got hired to do a video encoding out of college as a software engineer. And as my knowledge has grown over the years, one of the things that you've got to be careful about is, well, video is hard, as you mentioned earlier. And because video is so hard, you need to be aware as you go out there to make sure to reach out to those knowledge sources and knowledge bases that, that will tell you these kinds of things. And I think one of the things we as an industry need to get better at is there is a great deal of knowledge that has been kind of siloed a little bit in the MPEG standardization committees and stuff over the years about how the human visual system works mm, and what very we might good use. Um, that right. has not been That's right. made very public and very accessible. 
And so that's another big push, I think, that we're starting to see is to make that knowledge accessible to the everyday engineer. Yeah, that's that. That's an excellent, excellent point. So, you know, um, for for Beamer, we started our journey uh, going after uh, Hollywood Studios and the Tier One Studios, and and this was um, in the very early days when uh, we had developed our core IP, our core technology, which is um, uh, bitrate optimization that's completely perceptually driven. So we knew that um, we needed to get validation from the golden eyes, you know, and what, you know, where do you find these people? You find them in Hollywood, you know, you find them working for the major studios. And um, boy, let me tell you, it is a sobering process when your video is subjected to people who, you know, first of all, are literally six inches off off a display, <laughs> you know, looking at at, at pixel structure <laughs> and, and and you know, I think it's a really good point, Richard. There, there is a certain respect um, that that really is needed for that process, and, and it can be frustrating. Um, it can sometimes seem a bit extreme, uh, but we can say with absolute certainty that that it 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 resulted in a much 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 better. Um, uh, process on our side in terms of how our solution works, how our technology works. We greatly improved to the point that once we were able to get that that validation, sort of that stamp of approval, um, then we could go confidently into every situation and say, hey, this technology works and it works exactly as advertised. And we also have kind of gone through that process. And as I mentioned, you know, when you sit there, it does seem extreme. And a lot of people will say, is this really necessary? Um, you know, you've got all of that. You've talked about these Hollywood studio guys, and then I'll go in and executives or regular engineers will say, well, I can't see the difference right now. It looks great on my phone. And my answer to that would be the issues uh, with streaming those dark Game of Thrones episodes. The reason we pay attention to that is because, yeah, video quality doesn't matter until it does. And if you don't pay attention and, hey, yeah, maybe this one scene looks bad when it's dark, but what happens when you can't even stream your most premier content in good quality because your encoder doesn't deal well with dark scenes? Yeah, that, that's right. But, but there's one, one point we need, we need to make, and this is always a trade-off, and we've, we've encountered it in, in, in our work with the studios as well, um, you can tune uh, your production, your workflow, your encoder, uh, whatever you use for video, for the golden eye, and you can tune it for the average user. Uh, for example, if you want to please the golden eye, maybe you need to stream every HD video at eight megabits or ten megabits. Otherwise, artifacts are, you know, obviously uh, noticeable. But for the average user, you know, you can go down to three and a half or four megabits. And they won't notice the difference. So, how do you balance uh, your your target, your objective, the feedback that you get regarding quality uh, between the golden eyes, like like you that can see every artifacts, and average users, which is actually your target. Those are the audience of the stream. So that's where your your working point should be. You know, and that's a that's a fantastic question. And I think a lot of that comes down to your specific use case as a business. 
if you're in the business of premium content that should be visually perfect, then you skew towards the golden eyes, right? If you're in the business of, uh, I hate to call anybody out, but TikTok or YouTube videos, um, you know, people don't expect the content to be visually perfect and it's not authored and it's not set up that way. And that's fine. Um, so part of it is always going to be driven by use case and business. On the other side of it, you know, even if you are in that premium content space and you're looking and saying, well, I don't want to double my CDN bills to make golden eyes happy. Um, that's, that's where it does get very hard. And I think the answer is one, um, when you look at these, these video metrics, a lot of people, the thing that'll stand out for them is when something's really bad. Maybe a series of a few frames or sequences is becomes really blurry. Everybody in the world has had the experience of watching a football game back on the old cable set-top boxes when demand was really high, so the signal dropped on the qualm. And that's something I tell people, hey, run those quality of metrics. We talked about, you know, hey, there is a drive towards subjective. We should use those. But objective are really good here at catching those frames that are frankly awful. And make sure you're not producing a ton of those. So we found another good use for the objective quality metrics, which are the, uh, uh, which is kind of the sanity test, you know, to make sure your video is not completely garbled, you know, th those uh, metrics can help you in those situations. Richard, you know, where, where do we go from here? Um, you know, we mentioned early on in the conversation that, um, you know, there's, a lot of what we've talked about for the last 30, 40 minutes is, is kind of well-known. And I don't think this comes as a shock to anybody, you know, that there are, um, uh, you know, some gaps, shall we say, in objective quality metrics. Uh, but we also have talked about how difficult it is at scale, you know, to adopt subjective techniques. So maybe we can have a conversation here and wrap up with, you know, what could someone do? You know, I think that that's a, a great question. And the where, where do we go from here question really boils down to a few things. One, we keep improving those objective quality metrics. Two, we build better tooling for acquiring subjective quality metrics at scale, which you guys have talked about. And then uh, for me, three, it's just being aware as an industry, especially as we grow and bring in people from different backgrounds, um, you know, especially with streaming video, where a, a lot of the people working on streaming video today are software engineers. They, they didn't go to um, Fraunhofer and get their PhD in video encoding, so they're not aware of these weaknesses, is to spread the education about what you should do um, to optimize video quality and why we make the choices we do as the experts in the field. Yeah, I think um, those are great, certainly great insights. And, you know, we'll look forward to having you back on. And uh, we, I think we could have a really um, nice follow-up conversation. Uh, we also have mentioned uh, our development of auto vista and we're going to be talking some more about that and sharing with the industry you know just this tool that that we have built um that can really help you know scale uh subjective evaluations so richard uh thank you again uh thank you for joining us it's really great to have you on 
Thank you. Awesome talk. And definitely, Mark, we're going to have Richard uh, back again talking about objective and subjective, um, a very important topic. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, guys. It was a great, great conversation and great talking to you. And thank you for listening to the Video Insiders. Have a great day and happy encoding, encoding, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's Codex today, go to beamer.com forward slash free to receive up to 100 hours of no-cost HEVC and H.264 transcoding every month.